Hi, I'm Beth Sanders, and welcome to the City Nest Making Podcast. I work with citizens, city government, business, and community organizations looking for practical ways to navigate the complexities of city life so they can better hear each other and make better cities for themselves as a result. In this podcast series, I explore two questions. Who do our cities need to be to serve us well? And who do we need to be to serve our cities well? Good afternoon, Stoney. Good afternoon, Beth. And welcome to my virtual backyard as we sit by the fire. I'm enjoying this time connecting with friends that I don't get to see so much in this last year, but it's nice to have you with me. Thank you so much, Beth. I really appreciate being here with you. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful spring day in Edmonton. I can't believe it's been exactly a year since COVID has been sort of like happening officially because I remember coming back to Edmonton this time exactly on this date and everything was shut down. So to be here now and to spend time with you is a gift. Thank you. Let's um, let's start with a, a check-in and I'll offer this up and then whichever one of us feels like speaking first can. So it might be quiet for a moment, but what's one thing you've done today to reach out beyond your household? Yes, so... Um... Today, I actually connected with uh, eCamp, Edmonton as a City Museum Project, because I'm really interested in how I show up as a treaty person in Treaty 6 in Edmonton. And um, it was a really great conversation that I had with my eCamp colleague, because I really am trying to figure out a way to incorporate some Indigenous learnings and healings in some work that I'm doing right now. Lovely. For me, I would say what's tangibly coming up for me is I made um, I made a couple of deliveries of raspberry pie mm. to two um, planner colleagues and friends of mine, um, one of whom I have not seen since before the pandemic, one I've seen once, but um, I know they like raspberry pie. I have five raspberry pies. Now I don't have five. Now I'm down to three raspberry pies in my freezer and I've been cooking them over the last week (laughs) and sending out little missives into the world to see who would like a piece of raspberry pie. But it feels, it feels like so much more than raspberry pie because it feels like some of the raspberries are from the little raspberry farm I've started in my front yard and some of the raspberries are from Horse Hill Berry Farm just northwest northeast of Edmonton growing on the banks of the North Saskatchewan River so um, and the flower is local I have no idea where the lard came from but otherwise like it's it's made in my kitchen 
it's an excuse to reach out and make contact with people. Mm, so that's, I, I mean, that's my, that's my, my check-in. That's how I'm arriving. So I'm appreciating our different contributions or just the different flavors that we bring into this conversation we have mm-hmm. today. And we thought what we would talk about is like heritage practice and what is a heritage practice. And I mean, at the nub of that is, is how we met. And I love how you tell the story of how we met. So would you? Sure, no problem. <laughs> um, so this goes back, I think, like almost two, a year and a half, two years, maybe a year and a half. It's, it's more than that because I left the board of the Heritage, Edmonton Heritage Council two years ago. Oh, okay. So it's, we're going like three or four years ago wow. at least. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so it was funny because I was, I was actually, you know, I myself have moved back to Edmonton where I was born and raised um, six years ago now. And when I first got back to Edmonton, I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? It's so not Toronto. I forgot how Edmonton is. And um, I circulated through a couple of different institutions and jobs. And I finally ended up doing a Matt Lee fill at Edmonton Heritage Council. And um, what was really fascinating at that time was that there was, there is still going on, but there's this big plan, the connections and exchanges plan that the city of Edmonton and Arts Council and Heritage Council and Arts Hub have created, which looks at the 10 years of cultural and heritage landscape, right? So when I got to this position, I'm like, oh my God, this is so fascinating. This is so cool. What is Edmonton thinking? And you know, I wanted to reconnect to Edmonton because I felt at that point I really hadn't put my feet into something. And uh, the first official meeting that I had as part of that position was being part of a city, I think, consultation that was being held. And um, so there was this planner asking some questions. And I was like, okay, so you didn't answer my question really in my mind. So let me ask you a question. So I asked the question and he didn't answer the question. (laughs) And you were sitting in the front row. So I assumed you were a facilitator because you were like where the action was. And uh, you like look back at me and you're like, did your question get answered? (laughs) And I was like, no, but thank you for asking. And then later on, I found out that you were in fact not a facilitator at that particular venue at that particular time. But you were a board member of Heritage Council. So I. Your new employer. (laughs) (laughs) So I found, I did some sleuthing because I like doing that kind of stuff. And I found out that, oh my God, Beth is so cool. She's like a urban planner. She cares about like all this cool city stuff that I care about. I'm a huge Jean Jacobs fan. Toronto was doing all this alternative planning that I was part of. I didn't know this existed in Edmonton. Um, and then when we had our board meeting, um, you know, you, you go and as staff and you're meeting the board for the first time, there was like that awkwardness, sort of like what the, but, ah, uh, there was a seat beside you at the board table. 
saw a beehive and I sat down. I'm like, hi, I'm Sony. <laughs> and then I don't remember what happened after that. Well, context for, for listeners would be these board meetings are a dinner and you, you choose your place at a rather large table and, you know, you sit there, you've got your name tag, but you have to go and get your dinner and then sit down and nobody generally sits in the same place. Like there's, we kind of make a point of, of moving around, but yeah, you swooped in, (laughs) you swooped in beside me and hey, so and then we just kept connecting and it's been, it's been lovely. And I, I, uh, I, you've heard me say this before, and we wanted to talk today about what our heritage practice is. And I was on the board of the Edmonton Heritage Council for four years. And I'm like the one person on that board who does not have a quote unquote heritage practice. Like what I, what I care about is the the story of the city or the stories we tell ourselves about the city which is the stories could be historical present future like it all it all kind of weaves together but I was I mean I wasn't the only one but many board members and certainly staff have a have a hardcore practice whether it's research or archives or save a building or like whatever it is and I just didn't have any of that. And then it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, I still kind of think about why was I on that board? Totally, totally meaningful for me. And I know I made good, solid contributions to the organization, but I think the, the significant thing for me is, and it's, it's kind of meta, but even what I just said about like, what's the story of the city? But when I was on the board, we came to understand there is no one singular story of the city. There has been one that the city has believed about itself, which is the only one that we talk about for a very long time. And then it seems that now there's more spaciousness to hear, oh, there are different experiences and stories of the city. And somehow all of them are true. And isn't that a paradox? Because we come at things from different angles. So I think in the end, that's probably the value I got out of being on the board and participating. And if, if, if someone were to ask me, Beth, what's your heritage practice? It would be notice the story you're telling. Who does it include? Who does it not include? Who does it privilege? Who does it disadvantage? Does it even cause harm to others? Does it make me, does the story I tell myself make me feel more superior? I mean, there's all kinds of stories rolling around in our, in our cities. And the more conscious we are of those stories, then I think we get to choose the stories then, which means we're growing into who we are as a people more, more consciously. That's Mm -hmm. so it's a bit meta for me to have been on a board for the Edmonton Heritage Council, but that's, that's the value I got out of it. But I want to ask you, like, how would you Sony describe your heritage practice you're involved in so many different things like can you even crystallize it well you know I love how you said that so meta because same thing I don't officially have like a heritage title or heritage education or heritage background per se and when I had come into that position it was the interim grants position for maternity leave though right so basically it was distributing public funds for people who are interested in growing their heritage practice. 
and understanding what that means in terms of curation, archiving, you know, just keeping um, histories alive. And like you said, creating stories about Edmontonians. Um, one of the things that I found, uh, you know, just the difference between telling Edmonton stories and Toronto st stories, because that's where I was before, sort of like cultivating a different type of heritage practice, is that Edmonton stories are still, at that time, very, were based very much on a Eurocentric framework or lens. So that piece that you're saying about power, about privilege, about whose narration gets told, whose doesn't, why is it excluded, was my point of inquiry. Because in Connections and Changes as well, it is listed, but what is the manifestation and implementation of that? It's one thing to say that, but then how do you actualize it, right? So, so when I talk about heritage practice as well, like for myself as a, you know, a South Asian woman of color, my dad came to Edmonton in 1969 to uh, pursue his higher education and master's in engineering at University of Alberta. So I'm second generation alumnus, right? Um, so even like, can you imagine what 1969 Edmonton must have been like for him? <laughs> From the tropics arriving, so cold here in the middle of winter, you know, establishing himself. It was such a small population there, I'm sure, right? Because it's interesting. But like, so growing up here, like it was like, you know, there were different phases of understanding heritage and identity. Like I'm part of the South Asian community, which includes India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc. So at that time when I was growing up, the Indian community in Edmonton, South Asian community was just uh, becoming like bigger, 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 bigger but not to the extent that it is today, right? So to me, I was witnessing heritage manifestation practice happening from a certain part of the world. Because maybe before that, the generation before me might've been Ukrainian stories that were emerging or like your background, Nordic stories or English and French. Like, you know, this was the dominant narrative at that time in the 70s, 80s, right? Like, I mean, it started- For shifting. sure. Um, but- most recently, it's been shown that, oh, no, South Asians have been here since the 19, early 1900s. Same thing with the Chinese community, same thing with Amber Valley, the Black community. Um, and of course, we can't forget the time immemorial, like Indigenous peoples, like the Cree, Dene, Nakota Sioux, Salto, like there's so many stories that we don't even know about anything, right? Because yeah. we're not told them or we're not taught them or they're not shared because of this kind of, again, colonization, Eurocentrism that has occurred in city building, right? So, so for me, it's like a heritage practice is unpacking that. Um, and like you said, being curious and inquisitive and understanding that Edmonton has multiple stories that are all worthy of respect that all deserve to have a place in space and that all build the city that we interact with every day, right? So my goal is to keep sharing these stories with different collaborators, whether it be yourself or artists or academics or institutional people, donors, philanthropists, my children, the school system, 
hospitals. Like there's so many different ways and so many different places. It's endless possibilities, right? Um, most recently, Skirts of Fire. It's an organization, uh, arts organization that really focuses on like women's dance. They put together a really beautiful project called COVID Collections. Oh, and, nice. And it's so beautiful. It's about storytelling of all the women who have been impacted by COVID over this last year. And they have an art exhibit that is running at the former Army and Navy on White Ave. So because we can meet in person, um, people were asked to share their stories that a filmmaker then curated for our Skirts of Fire. And they matched the art that was in this exhibit to each person's story. So if you are able to, I highly encourage you to go check out the Army and Navy exhibit. And furthermore, you can watch this film, COVID Collections, until March 31st. So I'm sure, Beth, you can include it as part of this. Oh, definitely. I'll offering. put it in. I'll put a link in the in the description of the podcast for sure so people can go in mm-hmm. and have a look at it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I was part of that project. So it was really fulfilling to understand different women's experiences and grief and trauma and happiness and hope with this pandemic that's hit us as a story that is Edmonton locale. Yeah. An Edmonton story with multiple perspectives into it, like multicultural, I'm presuming in this case, right? Yes. Everything like in, in across all intersectional identities of class, of race, of, um, different perspectives, different professions, uh, different forms of artistic expression. It's really, it's powerful. Like, cause I didn't watch the final cut. I just happened to watch it. Cause somebody's like, oh, it's only, I saw you. I'm like, what? <laughs> and then, and so I watched it, I was crying. Cause it was beautiful. Cause you feel that COVID, that COVID thread. Like, I feel like all of us are feeling that. Right. Yeah. So it's like all of a sudden a year later. Wow. Like what happened? So I even encourage our our listeners. What is your COVID story? Have you documented it? Right. That in itself is heritage practice because this is a really profound time in history. And if we don't capture it, how do people know? Mm -hmm. Well, and how do we how do we process it and not pretend it didn't happen? Because mm-hmm. we could, we could just pretend it didn't happen. But how do we, how do we grab hold of the gifts of the time that we're in, to like to improve who we are as a people? And just what you're describing with skirts of fire and the, gosh, like the the breadth of the story told compared to, um, like what. I grew up with. So I was born in 1970. So a year after your dad arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the racist jokes that I heard growing up in my family were about Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> like just bizarre jokes. But anyway, but what a different story for Skirts of Fire to like to give to the city mm-hmm. as opposed to. 45, 40 years ago. So what I remember, say, as a 10-year-old, 40 years ago, when the story would be, 
who was the mayor mm-hmm. oh who was the next mayor <laughs> who was the premier who was the first president of the university like all these these white men like those were the stories we told and in many ways those stories are still well embedded in Edmonton but we're just starting to crack the nut and mm-hmm. see that there's more experiences out there than the white cisgendered successful whatever that means successful means popular because they won an election or a super duper awesome popular academic or university administrator like like we're putting we're noticing different people which means we're noticing more about who we are as a as a people in our city and i don't for a minute think that what's happening in edmonton is unique to other cities mm-hmm. around the planet but it's it's nice to just kind of digest what our experience is here in edmonton because it to me it's so much more nourishing mm-hmm. like i know i'm white but i feel more connected to edmonton when there's more going on than than just my story or like my family mm-hmm. lineage. Yeah, I hear that. And you know, I really love, you can correct me because I'm going to say it wrong, but um, I was uh, at another uh, event with you that you hosted for Ibiquitous University. And one of the archetypes that was used was a city is the organs and of Gaia. Is that it? Yeah. So this is Marilyn Hamilton um, pulled this from James Lovelock's book. And James Lovelock talked about humans as being Gaia, as in the planet, mm-hmm. Gaia's reflective organ. And then Marilyn took that work to mean cities are Gaia's reflective mm-hmm. organ. So cities are a place where humans have congregated but because of cities like are we've gotten more intelligent mm-hmm. you know we develop more work like just look at us over the last we don't have mm-hmm. to we don't have to go that far actually to think about like humans moving around the planet and then cities getting more and more numerous more and more populated and more and more new kinds of work and then we just we invent shit mm-hmm. And, but part of that capacity in humans is to be reflective, we assume, in ways that other species can't. And um, I'll just leave it at that. I think other species can do things (laughs) that we don't recognize, but at least for us in our little life bubble, in our human centrism, like we have a level of consciousness that we can we have the ability, should we choose to use it, to reflect on our role of, of being life, giving life to life on planet Earth mm-hmm. in a way that perhaps other species can't. But anyway, that's, that's what that was. Sorry, I went on a little tangent there. But so that meant something for you when Marilyn talked about cities or humans being Gaia's mm-hmm. reflective organ. I think, you know, so I I love that you explained it because I think this is important also about understanding different worldviews, right? And understanding heritage practice, right? So so for me, the other thing too is like, if we're reflective organs and we take that quite literally, how are our nervous systems as humans wired, right? Right now we're overstimulated, we're highly anxious, we're like bombarded with all this information that is useless to process even. So as humans, we're feeling our own 
systems and our own organs. Sometimes because of this heightened stress and, you know, COVID was a wake up call. It's like, you know, we, we're ill, like humans are ill because the earth is ill, right? So it's like that, that symbiotic nature of Gaia and cities too, as you're saying, right? So my interest too now as part of heritage practice is how are we well? How do we maintain wellness, like holistic wellness? How do we maintain mental health? How do we maintain physical health? How do we maintain spiritual health? So right? how is that part of your heritage practice, Sony? So yeah, like I mean, because I think what happens often is heritage is defined really very narrow, right? Like it's like buildings or um, built heritage, like cities are built. Or chronological events, right? Yeah, like this exactly. happened, then this happened, then this happened. That's very linear and very patriarchal and very like set in a dominant narrative that does not suit everybody, like we said earlier, right? But then there's this other piece of heritage practice, right? There's like the social, the cultural fabric, the economic, the political fabric, but there's also the nature, like the environment. So how do we interface with the environment, right? Like today's such an awesome spring day. Like how did I step out? I took a walk by the ravine. Luckily there were no coyotes because there's been a coyote warning in my neighborhood lately, right? But you see all this spring emerging and you see this renewal. I mean, like imagine me sitting with you by your fire eating the beautiful raspberry pie. Like it's just a beautiful day, Beth. Like we're just, you know, so I feel like, like this is a time of renewal and this is a time of retrospection and reflection about what does this mean when we understand it through a really diverse and wide angled heritage lens. Not this narrow lens that we've created about putting huma humans first, right? Yeah. Like in terms of ecosystems, in terms of um, understanding even the Carcadian rhythm, right? Like, I don't know about you, but when you're in winter, you hibernate, you go low, you go deep. You're just like, you don't want to go out. It's so cold in Edmonton. You just want to stay warm and cozy. And with COVID, it became even more isolating because we weren't able to go out or do anything. And there were there had to be different ways to interact then with winter. Unique ways maybe that people found maybe that they hadn't thought before, right? But now that it's spring, it's like there's a lightness. There's this, there's this want to be outside to re-embrace. I mean, that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. Maybe I shouldn't overgeneralize, but I feel this way that there's this lift. So, to me, this is part of my heritage practice as well because I'm documenting, like coming out of this hibernation, coming out of a little bit out of a year after COVID. Like, what is different for me? What is different for the way that my values are? What is different about the way that I'm living? What is different the way that I want to listen and hear stories that maybe I wasn't listening or hearing before because I was blocked off and dealing with something different, right? So it's like this in renewal. And I also feel like it's a time for collaboration, right? Like you said, you met your friend after a long time, but I feel like because I've missed so many people including you, this time also is like, oh my God, now we can go outside and I can meet you because of the restriction, we can't meet inside. So there's, there's this sort of, wow, I can see people. I can socially distance outside and now maybe there's more of a chance for me to 
have that opportunity to share a story, Mm -hmm. to remember this heritage moment that we create wherever it may be, right? And the irony of that too is that you talked about political elections, right? So there's an election coming up in Edmonton. And uh, I've been listening to the podcast, Where's Izena? Um, by the YW, oh, I'm going to say it wrong. Women's Parity, I don't even remember. And YWCA, I hope that's right. I apologize if it's not. But um, we just, you know, we live in the deep south like southwest of edmonton let's be clear you're in the deep south of edmonton yes southwest of edmonton (laughs) and what i like to say is once a south side girl always south side girl because i was born in the south side went to school in the south side that's it right but um so you know how they have the edmonton naming uh project yeah so the street that i lived on is actually named krang and margaret krang was one of the first women who had political office in Edmonton Council. So even for me, I live on a heritage street and my community is called Heritage Valley, right? So I feel like there's heritage everywhere, but maybe we don't recognize the heritage, right? Like I really admire how the city of Edmonton has taken ward boundaries and reformatted uh, them and then given them all indigenous names. Yeah. Like, that's amazing, right? So yeah. so it's like this kind of evolution of, like you said, understanding traditionally who might have been excluded or not included in the story and how that's shifting and moving. And even just in terms of like urban sprawl. So Edmonton to me is like suburbia, 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 right? So when I left um, for Toronto many moons ago, like in the late 90s, <laughs> when I left, there was like nothing right. It was all bush, right? Every year that I came back home or a couple of years to visit my parents, I kept on seeing the city expand, 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 expand to the point where now Leduc, parts of Leduc are part of the city of Edmonton because they've been annexed, right? So to me, that's even- Parts of Leduc County, yes, but not Leduc proper, no. just for any Edmonton yes. area listeners. Parts of Leduc County, right? Yeah. So so when we talk about that kind of growth of a city as well and guys' reflective organs, is it growing too fast? Or is it just right? Or is it not at all there? Or is it doing, is what's happening what's supposed to be happening? Mm -hmm. I I think this will make you chuckle. So when I was born in 1970, the first house that my parents owned was one of the brand, brand, brand new houses in Duggan. Mm-hmm. So That's what right. then, yeah. what then was the south end of the of the city, like like the the end of the street hadn't been built yet. Yeah, it was like that kind of new in 1970. Yes. So when you describe seeing like layers or rings and rings and rings around the city, arriving over the course of of years, that's that's completely my experience Mm -hmm. as well just going back a little bit Mm -hmm. farther what's what's fascinating to me is about how Edmonton is choosing to not do that anymore Mm -hmm. that the neighborhoods that we've built out as far as we have the decision has been made to stop doing that and build up rather than than out Mm -hmm. so for the planner geekies out there that are not familiar with Edmonton it's called the city plan and it's 
it's quite, I mean, it sounds really aggressive, but with all the modeling and everything that the planners at the city did, is it's really not that big of an ask to double the population in Edmonton to go from 1 million to two without stretching out further because um, there's not that many people living on most little parcels of land. Mm -hmm. And there are some significant large areas of land where a whole new development could happen. So it's not that crazy of an idea. And they're also talking about 1 million to 2 million over 50 years. So it's mm -hmm. not something that instantaneously is going to happen fast. Yeah. But what it does enable is us to have a city that will serve us better because we can have more services around where we live. So we don't mm -hmm. have to drive really far to get groceries or go to the doctor or the pharmacist. So it's gonna change the shape of how we experience Edmonton. And then the question is, so how do we, how do, we do that in ways that are culturally relevant to the people that are here mm -hmm. and the people that are going to be here? Because mm -hmm. in, in 15 years, um, white people will be the minority in Alberta, mm -hmm. which will for sure be the case in Edmonton and Calgary, the urban centers, mm -hmm. right? So like, how does that change? Like for us as these nebulous kind of heritage practitioners, how do we welcome more people to Edmonton that need to know like the fullness of the Edmonton story past, but also the, the Edmonton story in that future present? Because it will be reshaped again by their arrival, right? Yeah, of course. And you know, it's so interesting because when I moved to Toronto, um, like I said, in the late 90s, this was the discourse that was happening then. Because at that time, same thing, that 50% of BIPOC hadn't Black, Indigenous people of color hadn't happened yet, right? It was projected for 20, 2002, 2003, or sorry, like 2011 or something, right? It was like, like, like a little bit of a timeline, like about a decade from the late 90s till then. So I witnessed that happen as part of a city's growth like Toronto, right? Um, and I saw all these institutions and uh, communities sort of like come together to build and to advocate and to think about what does it mean to have ethnocultural sensitive services? What does it mean to build equitable access to services? What does it mean to have equity in housing? What does it mean to have alternative city planning when majority of the population is of Asian, Hispanic, African continental, and uh, yeah, descent, right? Like, because this is a shock to the city that has a heritage narrative that we started that has predominantly been Eurocentric, right? So, but, and the twist is, but like, I think what's really fascinating about Edmonton too, which is what I started my check-in with is that we have like the second largest indigenous urban population across Canada. So what does that mean for us as well as we, and I specifically take this journey about documenting heritage practice, understanding heritage practice, putting that lens first, Indigenous worldview, Indigenous lens first, because this is First Peoples, reality, land, time immemorial, right? Like, 
what is what is my role in that as I navigate all of this, right? So I find it fascinating because I feel like when sometimes when I'm sitting like in rooms where policy decisions are being made, like I used to work for the government of Alberta. I've done some work with the city of Edmonton, uh, with the University of Alberta, myself as an independent. I'm sometimes the only woman of color sitting in that room, right? And I'm like, okay, how are you gonna <laughs> understand this dynamic that's happening in different ways, right? Um, collectively. And then, or sometimes I hear comments, like just recently I had done some training for somebody um, this respected uh, person that I work with was like, oh, you know, I was trying to get some uh, mentors of color for this program in academia, but unfortunately, um, there, are not a pe there are not a lot of people of color that worked at the government of Alberta that I could access, right? So, so despite the fact that this on the ground shift is happening, this demographic shift is going to happen. Um, the connection to the institutional appendages of Gaia or of the way that we understand the infrastructure of a city are not there fully formed yet. They're like still no. in the stage, right? <laughs> if I can yeah. say it that way, right? Well, our institutions are going to have to catch up, right? Mm -hmm. Because in many ways, um, while I don't work in an institution, I'm very comfortable in the institutions because I've, I've grown up with them. I'm not, I'm not male, I'm female, but I, I can, I can make my way in them quite easily. So, and it's, I mean, I was gonna say it's kind of like, I'll be more specific. It is as though <laughs> those institutions were made for someone like me to work in. Because mm -hmm. I, I've grown up in that culture. I am a part of that culture, but it is wrong of, of me to assume that just because I can work in that institution well, that everyone else can, mm -hmm. because we're not all baked. <laughs> we're not all baked into this institutional thing. Like somehow when I was small, like my brother and I would play and we'd be playing like at, at the lake in the boat and it would be up on the hoist and he'd be the captain driving the boat and I'd be the navigator, only we'd call it the navigator. <laughs> we had to have a twist on it. But I was the navigator and I like I, I, I've often thought that is fascinating that I chose that word or even that role. I never insisted on being the, the captain, mm -hmm. but the navigator and the navigator of the system. So I understand the system that we're operating in quite well mm -hmm. and I can find my way easily. But that's because it was built for me and I was built for it. Mm -hmm. But it does not mean that it's built for for everyone and certainly not like just like name the different cultures that are are in Edmonton mm -hmm. like not everyone operates the same way or wants mm -hmm. to or should have to yes. right so that mentorship question that's another interesting part about our relationship mm -hmm. and where I would say we got to know each other just a little bit a little bit more but this notion of connecting 
people with each other who have different experiences mm -hmm. to enable them to make their way through the system is kind of fascinating. So even like your colleague who says like, I don't know um, people over there, like it just means he doesn't know them. Like it doesn't mean they're not there. It just might mean that only the people he knows are white and he doesn't oh, know people. Was, I think he was implying in that particular conversation that we're having that there are people there, but there are not enough people there like that. Okay. Like, you know, like BIPOC or okay. people who can lead that, right? Because it's a very specific program that has specific needs. Okay. There are lots of people. So there's a gap. He's he's a identifying gap. a gap. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, and you're right. Because uh, so then coming back to that piece about the institution. So, you know, one of the things to, when we'll come back to mentorship, but just before I, we go into that, I just wanted to talk about the C-session, right? So now that it's COVID, all the reports are coming out, women have left the workforce drastically because of childcare, because of this, because of that. And it's the biggest recession for gender in terms of female workforce participation. So how do we catch up with that, right? So this is an alarming trend that's gonna emerge for future work. Um, but also like, what are those barriers that are in the institution that uh, that that prevent diversity or intersectionality from happening. I am also institutional. I was born and raised in Edmonton. I went to the university system. I've worked many different places. I've maneuvered my way through many different institutional processes. I understand the system. The system understands me. But I have faced a lot of resistance from the system, from the institution, from people because of how I may present myself and how I may be because I'm challenging who is supposed to be sitting in that seat traditionally, right? So, so I love that we're having this conversation because I really think that through sponsorship and through mentorship, when people are in an institutional position of power who understand that and see that their gap like I'm saying, my colleague has mm -hmm. right, needs to be addressed, needs to be fulfilled, needs to be named, whether it's racism, sexism, homophobia, bullying, harassment, psychological safety, whatever you want to call it. Then that mentor and that sponsor, which are two different things, can actually pick up the leadership hat, put it on and say, what is my commitment to making sure that those barriers are identified and then there's more people that I can work with who are my mentees, who is my collective of practice, who I can build a relationship with that's mutual, not power, because I could also learn a lot from a mentee to move them into a sustainable heritage practice, as was the case with the mentorship that we did together. Mm -hmm. or any other institutional practice yeah. where we're diversifying the workforce. Yeah. In a position of power, we have responsibilities mm -hmm. when we find ourselves there, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so how do you find, like, I think that's the thing. So what I really loved about the Heritage Mentorship Program when we were going through it, like, together, was that instead of taking a traditional one-on-one -on -one, like mentor, mentee, which is a traditional mentorship model, 
Beth, because you are such an awesome facilitator and amazing conversationalist and just, you know, a community builder. We had a couple of extra people who were very interested as being part of this mentee, like the mentee part of the program. And we didn't have enough mentors. And you step forward and in that leadership position, you're like, okay, I have a solution. I'll pick five. <laughs> so now you've doubled your work or did you? Like what compelled you to say that? Well, I did not. I did not because we didn't, I didn't meet with five people individually. There were five and me and we, we sorted out, we, well, like, like everyone else was going to do, we met three times and then we met a fourth time because two people missed one and we're like, what the heck, let's just do it a fourth time. And like, what we did is we, we sat around my dining room table and like today, like we, we checked in, we got to know each other and I I created some space for them to dig around within themselves and figure out like, what is it that they were showing up looking for? Or like, was it like they, some of them had decisions to make about, do I apply to go back to school or do I apply for a job or I'm setting up a program? How am I going to do it? Or I just don't know, am I leaving Edmonton? Am I staying in Edmonton? Or um, I have this project and it's like, freaking me out like that was that was one of them too right and all we did was just in a really robust way um like meet each other and hear where each other was they sorted some stuff out and if they wanted to they could like be explicit and have the rest of us witness an action that they were going to do before we next met and then again and again and and then just concluded with like, so what, what was the value of having done this? And they could, they could name it, but it wasn't, it wasn't more work for me to take on five. And my assumption was, is they have as much, like as much wisdom to give each other as they have for me, or I have for them that with six of us sitting there, we'll be much wiser for each other than just two of us. So we, we did kind of blow the model, but I found it to be, it was nourishing for me. Mm -hmm. It was, it was a good experience for them. And um, I think it also helped nudge us out of that conventional mentor mentee where we're so well trained to think that the mentor has all the answers or that the mentor has to be older. Cause I think sometimes the mentor can be younger just use social media as like the perfect example where a 20 year old can tune up a 70 year old in two seconds flat about how to, what's a TikTok Like, like it's just base. It's as basic as that. Right. From my six year old daughter is like, mommy here, this is how you use your phone. I'm like, exactly. What? Exactly. So like, and part of it is, is if we're going to be a community that learns together, it, and we can do that as a group of six rather than a group of two, then, then why not? And then the other thing in that instance was, is, is you, you had a list of people that would be, you know, suitable mentors and you had, you sent out an invitation, like, here's our mentors who would like to be a mentee and a fantastic process of speed dating so that we could all meet each other. 
and my proposal right away was there's more mentees than there are mentors and if that's if you're okay with it as a mentee like i'll i'll take on as as many as are needed we knew it would be a maximum of of five and it, and it worked out magically but really what we were was a little for a short while a community of practice mm -hmm. and i think that's beautiful beth because it totally falls back into your awesome kick-ass book next city <laughs> right next city so i mean like just in terms of community of practice like i value the community of practices that you create um and that you've written about and that you continue to write about and that you have in your podcast because like net city for example i feel like all the probing questions that are in that book to be reflective are just a reflection of guys organs as a, having a human experience in the city right number one number two um, you also created another community practice that I was part of, uh, where we got together with a group of, I think three or four people yeah. and you led that space was so, you know, that's the thing. Like if you want to be reflective, if you want to monotask, cause we're so used to multitasking, you have to, I have to, whoever has to set apart time in their calendar to really devote that time. I know I have to do that if I want to have some time to think, to make some plans, to think about what is it that I want to do in community practice? What is it I want to do for my individual self? What is it I want to do for my holistic self, right? And going through that process of you know, meeting with other people who are on different pathways, entering at different points from all over the world. There was a person there from the Caribbean, right? Like, I feel like it's so enriching because the way that you led that as well, it was very short. There was only two or three sessions, I believe, or four. We, we were four, yeah, four sessions, but yeah. still pretty short. And, uh, and the kind of uh, sharing and the kind of probing and the kind of reflection time in that short period of time really helped me have the time then to manifest what I wanted to see as part of my inquiry into where am I today and where would I like to be tomorrow, right? And where have I, what have I done yesterday to bring me here? So also I think that that's a heritage narrative, right? It's like in order for us to understand a future world, whether it be the future of work, the future of a city, the future of whatever we want to manifest, we really need to understand our past and all the ugly past, all the beautiful past, all the past of hurt and grieving, all the past of celebration to come to where we are today and process that so we can move into the future of what it is that we want to create. What I appreciate about what you've just articulated is what you're describing is reflection at scale. Right. So at the beginning of our conversation, we're talking about reflection more or less at a pretty big scale, like at the scale of a city, thinking about who are we? What are the stories we tell? Do we have room for other stories or just one? And then right now we're talking about like me as an individual reflecting on who I want to be, where do I fit? What's the work I want to do? What are the contributions I want to make? And giving ourselves the time 
as an individual, like you just nailed it, right? That monotasking time to focus and give the gift to self of, hang on a second, let's just like pause and notice like what actually matters to me here. And then a path of action can come from that. And what if we, what if we do stuff like that at bigger and bigger and bigger scales? I think that's what we try to do as a city and it gets the bigger the scale, the wobblier it gets, but it's just as important. If we want to have a city that's in conversation with itself about who it is and who it wants to be, the building blocks for that are us. Mm -hmm. So we have, like our city is only going to be as reflective of itself or have the capacity to be reflective as we have the capacity to be reflective, which is kind of a big, big idea. So I think since we're talking about reflection, we should reflect in some fashion as a, as a checkout mm-hmm. for ourselves. And um, either of us can go first. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be you that goes first. But the question I'm wondering is, um, in this time, we've just been chatting. What's one thing that's been revealed to you that you didn't know before we sat down? here for this conversation. How will you go first? I can go for it. I was just, I was just about to, I think, I think what I just said, I knew, but I just said it somehow in a more crystallized way, Mm. or I've said it in many other ways, but not the way I just said it. Just that piece about like when we reflect about who we are as a people, we're only going to be able to do that as well as our individual abilities to reflect on who, who I am as a person, who you are as a person, who my neighbors are, etc. There's, there's something, there's something in there that's quite, quite juicy to me. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. So like self, to system right like self to system and self as system Mm -hmm. self as system in another system Mm -hmm. in another system in another system so uh, this is what i feel my life's work is and this is what i like that's self and system system and self right i feel like that's my life's work and that's what i've always tried to articulate with different narratives so for this particular podcast with you, we're talking about a heritage narrative that can encompass many different entry points and different ways of understanding that model, right? Um, and self and system, system and self actually stole from, well, didn't stole, I'm borrowing from Jerome Morgan, my social innovator boy from Grand Prairie, um, my friend, my colleague, he's quite an accomplished gentleman. Um, so I really love that. Uh, I think that what 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 something new, right? Something new is like there's always something new that you can sink your teeth in and it can become juicy. And I love generative conversations to make that happen. And I've just had this amazing generative conversation with you. So now to reflect, I have to process what we talked about so I can pull little 
low-hanging fruit to begin with, to sort of like percolate around and then create a larger understanding of what just transpired. And is there a low-hanging fruit just dangling in front of you right now, Sony? What's that first one you'll take? I think I really, I really love community of practice. We don't do it enough, right? And, and I feel like, what does that mean for heritage practice, especially? Because I don't see it sometimes. And maybe I'm not uh, at the right place sometimes, right? To see it, because I'm maybe putting some glasses on that are prohibiting me from seeing community practice sometimes. And it might not be there mm -hmm. or it might yeah. not be accessible. Yeah, yeah. Have you? Yeah. So I think that it's like that balance about where is it that I find that community practice that I feel comfortable and able to contribute in. And it is there, I'm sure, but it's like, maybe I've, and I'm, I'm sure it's ebbed and flowed. I've been able to create some within the last two years of knowing you, I feel, and being at this, as part of this inquiry in Edmonton. Um, so yeah, it's like giving Edmonton that opportunity to let this evolve and not just shutting it down or judging it. Like that's, that's been my practice. So what I've learned now is just let it flow and it will appear. Let it flow and it will appear. Magical, magical words for us to end on. Thank you, Sony, so very much for joining me. Thank you, Beth. It was a pleasure. I have three reflection questions for you to ponder after listening to Sony and I in conversation. What is the mainstream story of your city? What other stories of others' experience of the city are emerging in your awareness? How do you practice making room in your life for others' stories that do not fit perfectly with your understanding of the world. Thanks for listening to the City Nestmaking podcast. If you'd like to further explore city nestmaking and who we need to be to make cities that serve us well, check out bethsanders.ca. Until next time, build with care. Let's aim to be conscious of how we make these places we call home.